You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. All right, friends, just me on this episode, no guest today. Uh, I'm going to be doing two things today, primarily. The first thing is just updating you on my current project, what I'm working on. And then the second thing, we're going to look at a case study on differentiation. I'm going to actually just tell a true story of what's going on actually right now in this modern history where a 23-year-old had to differentiate against a company that was fraudulent, had to blow the whistle, and it's now become a lawsuit. That's quite a story. So um, many of you know, particularly my long-term listeners, uh, most of the time or half of the time I have a guest on this show we, we talk about leadership, we get under the surface, we get inside their mind. Sometimes it's just me, and uh, when it's just me, uh, this is oftentimes the sound you'll hear. This is the sound of my lighter lighting a candle. Same candle I've been working on for quite a while, the Kakadu Plum Company, the Mangala candle. Been lighting this candle uh, less lately because I'm doing more of my work upstairs. My podcast studio is down in our basement. And I'm not down here as much as I used to be. We're down to one kid uh, in our house and she's gone all day at school and I find myself up above ground. Honestly, a lot of the time for my own mental health, more natural light up there. Uh, So anyway, I'm not down here much. So this candle is not getting as burned as much as some of my candles upstairs. But long-term listeners, you know that it's just a simple practice. I light the candle just to remind myself and as an invitation to remind you that God is with us. That's the insidious nature of chronic anxiety. It actually tries to get us to forget that God is with us, just that simple core issue. And so I light a candle just so I can see the light. And also it's a chance for me to get off the anxiety treadmill, take a deeper than normal breath. Just pay attention to what's going on. What's going on in me? What's going on between me and God? What's going on between me and other people? Those of you who are newer to this show, that's really what we work on. Uh, We look at the science of chronic anxiety. You know, everyone's talking about anxiety nowadays. Actually, I'm, I'm really happy to see that. That's great. But I just work in one field, and that's chronic anxiety. Chronic anxiety is the most common anxiety in the workplace and the home place uh, because it's generated by assumptions and expectations. I hold assumptions about myself. I hold assumptions about you. I have expectations about myself. I place expectations on you. And of course, you do to me as well. And that's why chronic anxiety is the only kind of anxiety that's contagious. I find that fascinating. Out of all the different anxieties, grief, trauma, anxiety that requires medication, all those anxieties, there's just one that you can catch, and that's chronic anxiety. Chronic anxiety It's not so much worry and fear. It's better understood as reactivity. And we all get reactive when our assumptions are violated, when our expectations are not met, when somebody assumes something about us that's not true, when somebody puts an expectation on us that we cannot live up to, let alone, of course, our own expectations that we can't live up to. So you know you're chronically anxious when you're reactive. And you know you're reactive when you're getting bigger or smaller than human size. The goal is to be exactly human-sized, and the goal 
is to live in reality as much as we can, because chronic anxiety, since it's based on assumption and expectation, what's driving it under our assumptions and expectations? What's driving it is our false beliefs. That's why we get chronically anxious. That's not why we get traumatized necessarily or grieving, but we get chronically anxious because we have all of these false beliefs. So for example, in my life, I believe that everyone I ever meet should like me. That's an assumption I have. That's a expectation I have. And so if you expect something out of me and I can't live up to it, then your expectation infects my assumption about myself and I get filled with reactivity. Sometimes that means I get bigger. I, I talk more. I try to fix. I overfunction. Sometimes reactivity means I get smaller. I'm like a turtle in my shell. I hope no one calls on me. I try to hide. And so this is what we do on the show. We help you notice chronic anxiety. We help you diagnose it or name it. So notice and then name it. And then we help you diffuse it. And the reason we light a candle at the top is because chronic anxiety has a gospel. And the gospel message is, uh, God's not here. It's all on you. Try harder. Do more of the same of what's not working. Chronic anxiety puts you on a treadmill to nowhere. And then once you get to running on that treadmill, it starts to press the incline button. It starts to press the go faster button. And you're just going, going, going. But you're not getting anywhere. And you've forgotten that you're a human being. So the candle is one of many tools. There's so many tools we can use to trip over the love of God, to stub our toe on God's presence. These, these different tools, these exoskeletons, these scaffolding, whatever you want to call it, these hacks, just these simple reminders that God is with us. Get off the anxiety treadmill. Take a deeper than normal breath and remember God with us. It's God's own nickname. That's what God's nickname is, Emmanuel, God with us. It's amazing because it's hard to be chronically anxious when you remember that God is with you. And Jesus said, you can know truth and truth can set you free. I've bet my whole life on that, my whole life. I've bet on the idea that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and that Jesus sets me free. So what I've come to learn as I've studied chronic anxiety, the science of it, and the theology of it, is that God exists in concrete reality. Chronic anxiety puts us in a false reality. So for example, if somebody doesn't like me, I'm now in a false reality and I do things and say things and think things that are not true, trying to win somebody over the idea that if they don't like me, Armageddon's about to happen. That's the gospel of chronic anxiety. But instead, I can relax into the goodness of God. And that's what we do on this podcast. There's about 155 or so, 156 episodes now. We've been at this a while because it's slow work for sure. All right. So actually, that was just uh, an intro. So let's get to uh, the, the two things we're doing today. The first thing is an update. I have signed a book contract with Zondervan Reflective. I'm so excited about this. Um, I was able to sell enough of managing leadership anxiety so far to attract uh, publishers. But also, I got to meet this phenomenal guy named Don Pape of Pape Commons. I'll pop his uh, website in the show notes for you. And he's my literary agent. And man, what a great guy Don has been to me. And uh, just so excited to, to work on this project together. So we signed a deal with Zondervan this week. 
I'll turn in the manuscript the end of January 2023, and then it'll publish January of 2024, somewhere between January and April of 2024. I know, man, the publishing world is slow. I mean, when you think about it, they've got a lot that they have to do. But I turn in the manuscript January, and then a year later or so, out comes the book. So I want to talk to you about what it is, and I'm also going to ask your feedback. That would be a great help to me. Uh, That's the first half of the podcast, and then the back half, a quick case study on differentiation of self. All right, so the book, the working title, Minding the Gap. That's the working title. I don't know if that'll be the final title. Minding the Gap Between What We Believe About God and What We Experience from God. That's what the book is. Obviously, the subtitle's a little long, Between What We Believe About God and What We Experience from God. So many words, may not be much room for cover art on that book. But I believe that every human being, and particularly every follower of Christ, grapples with a gap between what we believe about the core attributes of God. For example, we believe that God is love. We believe that to the very depths of our being. And yet, and yet, how often do we experience the unconditional love of God? I think there's a gap there. I would say it this way. I believe God loves me, but I don't feel it. That was me for years, to be honest, even as a pastor. I would I would grapple profoundly with deism. I, I believe that there was an all-powerful God, but an all-loving God? It, it, I wasn't sure about that, and it wasn't until I did some deep work on my inner critic and the story I tell myself about myself, uh, my tendency, my family of origin, my family propaganda, these are all systems theory tools, until I did that deep work to discover that all of those put together were proclaiming a gospel in my life. And quite frankly, really a gospel that said, you're not worth God's love. You're not worth it. There are others that need it more. And so that's one of the chapters I'll be writing about. I believe God loves me, but I don't feel it. One of the gaps. Another gap, I believe God is with me, but I don't see it. I believe God's with me, but I don't see it. We believe in an omnipresent, involved God, not a deistic God who's uninvolved, the the great unblinking stare. I think that's the way Dallas Willard describes uh, the deistic God. That's not the God we believe in. I have no interest in that God. We believe in a God, a John 1.14 God, a God who emptied himself, according to Paul in Philippians 2, emptied himself and took on the very nature of a servant and came uh, dwelt among us, became flesh, says the author John. Uh, in the message version, Peterson translates John 1.14 that Jesus moved into our neighborhood, and then the wonderful late Lewis Smedes adds a little tagline to that. He says, and he packed his toothbrush and his sleeping bag with him. I believe God's with me, but I don't see it. And so in the book, we'll be looking at the nature of chronic anxiety and how it insidiously numbs us to God's presence, and how chronic anxiety tries to get us to be God instead of being human-sized. The third gap, just three gaps in this book. The third gap, I thought I'd be further along by now. Man, how many of us just thought we would be better at this Christian thing by now? So, I'll be sharing what I've learned about chronic anxiety the way it numbs us to God's presence, the way it spreads its own gospel, the way chronic anxiety keeps us on a futile treadmill 
of More of the Same and Try Harder. In the book, we'll dive into the dynamics inside our own thinking patterns, but also I'm going to take a look at the well-meaning but unhelpful ways our church culture can also keep us stuck or trapped. Now, I think if you know me at all, you know I'm a local church guy. I've given my whole vocational life to the local church, and that's still what I do full-time. As much as I do work in the business sector, 80% of my time is dedicated to helping local church staffs. So when I say that well-meaning but unhelpful ways our church culture keeps us stuck, I'm not a hatchet guy. I, I don't throw cheap shots. But as I was thinking about these gaps, I think what happens is we have these thinking patterns, and because we all get together, and because chronic anxiety is contagious, we form like a whole system in our church culture that sometimes can reinforce these false thinking patterns. So I want to take a look at that. Okay, uh, also after those three chapters, we're going to look at a few dynamics. I'm going to look at deconstruction. Now, this is not a book on doubt. There are some incredible books on doubt, and I myself have had a profound doubt journey that started in the mid-1990s, first in chaplaincy and then in seminary. But I do want to look at deconstruction and how it works through the lens of systems theory. I also want to take a look at the way our churches can use all-in and sold-out and 100% language that can unintentionally keep us from growing and transforming. For that third gap, we thought we'd be further along by now. I'm going to tackle our tendency to compare ourselves with the uh, disciples in the book of Acts and compare ourselves with a global persecuted church, those of us in the West, and really show how those comparisons are unfair and unhelpful. So what I want to look at is our whole tendency to strive without any real progress and how we can die to it. So MLA, Managing Leadership Anxiety, that was really written for church leaders. This book, Minding the Gap, is really written for church people. Now, you don't have to be a church person to benefit from this book, but it's really tackling the follower of Christ who feels stuck in your faith, or rusty, or not very good at it, or you you yearn and long to have a visceral encounter with the God you so deeply believe in. I want to write a book that gives you some relief, helps you diagnose some tendencies through the lens of systems theory. Now, it's not overtly a systems theory book. I am giving a whole chapter to where I'm describing systems theory as best as I possibly can in one chapter so that somebody who knows nothing about it can pick up this book read the chapter, and suddenly understand. Now, that's quite a bit of effort, and I'm glad I have a literary agent, Don, to help me with the editing on that. But what I found is magical about systems theory is it's one of these things that you can have never heard of, but 10 or 15 minutes in, you suddenly find yourself in. So I, I have great confidence that the average follower of Jesus can pick up this book, get a little understanding, a little bit of thinking about the way we think, and understand the simple idea of what a system is and isn't, so that they can then apply system theory themselves and diagnose their own assumptions, their own expectations, their own false beliefs. Because I believe if we can uncover false beliefs in our life and die to them, we can have a glorious resurrection into the truth of the gospel. And I don't believe that's just a saying or a bumper sticker or something pithy. I think you can actually, in your body, feel the freedom of Christ as opposed to the tyranny of chronic anxiety. So 
that's minding the gap. I'll be taking a look at how uh, some of our sloppy language according to the Bible gets us into trouble. Or I didn't quite say that right, but the way we approach the Bible can sometimes be sloppy and then keep us bound. I'm also be taking a look at some of the different pithy thoughts we have in the church, like that we're all special, that God has a plan for all of our lives. Uh, Our expectations on miracles, like what can we rightly expect from God? And when Jesus and God did miracles in the Bible, what was the primary reason? Things like that. So um, I'll be doing these broad topics like love and presence, but I'm also going to be picking into some particularities as well to try to detangle our assumptions from the truth as it relates to our faith. I mean, if you think about it, systems theory, all it does is look at your most precious relationships and how anxiety spreads in your precious relationships. And I guess I just woke up one day and I thought, well, there's no more precious relationship than my relationship with God. What would it look like to apply systems theory to my relationship with God? Of course, not so much on God's side, like, you know, God's perfect, God is true. But on my side, the way I come to God, the things I believe about God, uh, the, the beliefs I have that are deeper than my beliefs in God. Until I did this work, I didn't think there was any belief I held deeper than my belief in God. But it turns out, just a little spoiler alert, my inner critic, my, the voice of condemnation in my head, the voice that said, you're not worth loving, for example. Painful to say, and I, I know on this podcast I'm saying it very cheerfully, uh, I did a lot of that work boy, seven or eight years ago now. So I can talk about it with, you know, a sing-songy voice instead of the tears and gnashing of teeth that I was going through in 2012 to 2016 when I was really doing this work intensely. Anyway, what I discovered is, oh man, I have these core beliefs that I'm operating out of that are deeper than my belief in God. What would it look like to let the good news of Jesus infect my deepest beliefs? So that's minding the gap. Um, Now, The reason I'd like your feedback on this is if you find yourself grappling with a gap, I would love to hear from you. What gap do you grapple with? What's it like for you? Just You could send me a voicemail. You could uh, Twitter to me. So my email is steve at stevecusswords.com. I'm easy to reach. You can also find me on Twitter and just DM me. I'd love to hear about your gaps because I don't want this to be about me. I would like to provide a book that gives relief to as many people as possible. All right. So I'm working on that. I'm getting up at 5 a.m. every morning and chipping away at this book. Um, This is only my second ever book that I've written. And so I'm still learning how to write and what I've learned about myself. Maybe for those of you who are thinking that you'd like to write a book one day, what I've learned about myself is uh, every first draft I write, I, I get drunk on it. Like every time I'm writing, I get this weird euphoria as if what I'm writing is just the best thing ever. And then I come back to it later, and it's just so bad. It's verbose, it's wordy, it's it's redundant, like it's just bad writing. And uh, what's been humbling for me is to realize that it's it's somewhere between five and twelve edits to get my really bad writing into some kind of shape. So I've learned how to be patient with myself. I've learned that editing is two thirds of the process for me, and I've learned not to trust the first thing that I write uh, as a good idea. Okay, that's Mining the Gap. Let me know what you think. Let me know what your gap is. Let me know if you see a a thinking pattern in the church that you think maybe we should be taking a look at. Again, not to take cheap shots at it, but to maybe give all of us relief because 
For those of you who are not pastors, and I know many of you are not pastors, we grapple with these gaps too. And I guess I would just say personally that I've had the great privilege of serving a church that allowed me and actually welcomed me to share my doubt and my gaps with them. And I did that not to like vomit all over people with my own doubt, but to provide a context where people could safely bring their doubt and their gaps out into the open as well. You know, anxiety and doubt, it likes secrecy. Uh, it likes to keep you stuck and in shame. But Christian community, being vulnerable in front of other people, it's really freeing. So this is also a book for you pastors as well who are grappling with your own gaps and your own doubts. Hopefully, hopefully, a book that you and your congregation could all go through together and have a really rich conversation together. All right, that's coming in 2024. I'll be sharing updates through that whole process. Uh, and and listen, hey, podcast listeners, uh, thank you so much because in a very real way, you're a lot of the reason this happen- is, this is happening. When I wrote Managing Leadership Anxiety, there were probably 50 people in the world that knew that I taught systems theory. But through the reach of the podcast and some of my social media, but really it's my podcast that's my largest audience, and of course my MLA book readers, you guys are the reasons that publishers said, hey, we want to give this guy another shot. I mean, they like my ideas, it's true. They were very compelled by this idea. But also when they see my audience, they're like, okay, this is a guy that people are listening to. So I want to thank you too for helping me be in this position. It continues to be incredibly bewildering and incredibly encouraging. been wondering whether to join Capable Life, my online community. And maybe the last 20 minutes is enough of a reason why to do it. You can just hear these are the kinds of conversations we have on Capable Life. The website is capablelife.me, and it's simply the online version of the class that I've been teaching at our church for 10 years. What I love about it is it's not just me teaching now. I've got other coaches in our church that teach it as well. So we're teaching this class Right now at our church, we have a year one and a year two. And we have Brendan and Jimmy and Renee and Randy and others at our church that help coach and teach. Basically, Capable Life is a set of modules self-paced. You go through on your own time at your own pace. Brief videos, usually eight to ten minutes. Some of them sneak up to 15, but all the videos are brief. And then self-assessments. So, for example, if you want to diagnose your own unique source of anxiety, then you're going to take the module Introduction to Anxiety in You. It's six videos and two self-assessments. You can go through the whole thing in 90 minutes or so. You can easily do it in a week. You study the videos, you learn the content, and then the self-assessments help you diagnose, and then they email themselves to you. So when you do a self-assessment, you'll get it in your inbox for your records. This is why a lot of teams have signed up. We've got a number of teams that are signing up together, churches looking for staff development, churches that know that emotional health is the foundation of everything healthy about a staff. So we have staffs that sign up together, and then you can bring your self-assessments to your meetings. 
maybe your one-on-ones, maybe your group meetings. Uh, maybe you don't feel safe in a big department, but you can still do it with your peers. Talk about what you're learning. We have 15 modules on Capable Life right now. And recently we introduced Enneagram. Uh, Jimmy, one of our Capable Life coaches, he's our Enneagram specialist. And he filmed us a module with self-assessments. And he's just wrapping up his second module that'll probably be released, I would say, in about a month. Stay tuned right around Thanksgiving or so. You'll be seeing that. So for those of you who love Enneagram, but want to particularly study Enneagram through the lens of anxiety and systems theory, Jimmy's your guy. Uh, he, he guides us through this and he goes pretty deep, but he makes it really accessible, way beyond just knowing your number. So capablelife.me, we have modules, self-assessments. We also have a search feature where you can do your own study on all the resources on the website. We do monthly Zooms. I'm on Capable Life on Zoom four to six times a year. It is easily the best way to get with me if you have a case or a question. But also Renee, uh, one of our most experienced Capable Life coaches, she hosts a monthly Zoom on there. So you're never more than a month away from getting some help. All right, I've said enough. If you're looking to break through for yourself, if you're tired of running into yourself, if you're tired of carrying pressure and that voice of condemnation, Capable Life can help. You can do it the long way or the short way. The long way is the way I did it. Go through intense chaplaincy, take graduate school training in systems theory, read and read and read, run into yourself for years, create a class for people, and then put it online. That's the hard way. Or you can do the easy way, which is join Capable Life. I've done all the hard work for you. I've built the path for you. I guess my final word about this would be if all you're doing is listening to a podcast or reading a book, you won't change. That's not how transformation works. You need a trusted group. You need a path, a proven path. You need a coach to help you. All of that's available in Capable Life. So whether it's for you or if you're looking for something for your team, www.capablelife.me. That's also where you can get our new 12-week journal, same website for the journal. All right, thanks for indulging that. And uh, I'd encourage you to join. Okay, just the last 10 minutes or so of the show, I want to do a case study on uh, differentiation. Uh, for those of you who don't know differentiation, I'm actually not going to define it because I've done so many episodes on it. You can just search the podcast for differentiation. I actually did a three-episode run really going in deep. But it is the cornerstone of systems theory, and it's also one of the most difficult things to practice. In, in short, it's the ability to not let your reactivity spill out and not catch reactivity from others, while at the same time staying emotionally connected to the people that you might be anxious about. Now, that's what really sets differentiation apart, is you're not cutting people off, you're not writing them off, you're not having anger fantasies about them, you're intentionally working on staying connected. It's really powerful. The, the next piece of differentiation, this is funny right now because I, I think I just said I wouldn't define it and here I am defining it. Okay, so you stop from catching anxiety, you stop from spilling it, you stay connected emotionally to yourself and to the other people. But then the, the next step is you stay committed to your vision and values. What is God calling you to do? This is really where differentiation gets powerful because people can be criticizing you accusing you, trying to knock you off the path. 
but that that four steps staying committed to what God has called you to do, your vision and values, defining yourself is one way they call it. It's really powerful. So we see differentiation, for example, almost any time a brave survivor of sexual assault or abuse has come forward in a church system and blown the whistle, particularly when the organization sadly, all too predictably, covers over and demonizes the victim. And then that victim has to differentiate, stay true to herself or himself. All right. So I've been listening to a podcast lately. It came out a few years ago. It's called The Dropout. The Dropout. It's also a miniseries. I believe it's on Hulu. And it's the story of Elizabeth Holmes, the CEO of Theranos. If you're not familiar with Theranos, uh, Elizabeth Holmes was a Stanford undergrad student who dropped out of Stanford her sophomore year and started a company, a medical tech company. The claim was that rather than getting vials of blood drawn when you need blood tests, that she could do over 200 different kinds of blood tests with one or two drops of blood. So it was this radical, revolutionary idea that instead of lab core and going to your doctor, you could just, for example, go to a Walgreens, eventually have a home kit where you could actually diagnose cancer and cholesterol and all of these different serious and not so serious tests with just a couple of drops of blood. I mean, it's really an amazing idea. I remember with one of my family members who's always struggled with veins, I've sat with her as the nurse is digging around trying to draw blood. It's painful. And so this was an incredible idea. Uh, and then it, it really took off. Elizabeth Holmes got hundreds of millions of dollars of venture capital. She got huge names involved, people like Larry Ellison, um, Avi Tavanian from Apple, George Schultz, Ronald Reagan's old Secretary of State. There's a name from the past. George Schultz and Reagan worked with Gorbachev to knock down the wall. Schultz is a legend. She had these giant famous names on her board, many of whom who gave her a ton of money. In fact, she became the youngest female billionaire in history. The problem was the whole thing was a fake. Uh, she never had a machine that could do what she said it could do. She lied and deceived, like, for example, when Walgreens came in and actually became a partner for a while. She would get the Walgreens guys in the boardroom. They would give their one or two drops of blood. She'd take them out to lunch, and then they would fake the test results. They'd come back to these fake test results. So this was a big problem. Okay, so here's where differentiation comes in. At one point, Elizabeth Holmes went to George Schultz to invite him onto her board. She kind of pitched him on the vision. She was young herself. She's maybe 28 by this point. She started the company when she was 19. Just absurd. And of course, yes, no medical training. Um, and so she's with George Schultz, and he says that he would agree to come on her board if she would do him a favor and let his grandson, Tyler Schultz, uh, be an intern at Theranos. Tyler was a Stanford student, I believe a freshman, maybe a sophomore at the time. And she said, yep, no problem, Tyler can come. So there he is, 22, 23 years of age, an intern in a multi-billion dollar tech company. I mean, Time Magazine, uh, Forbes Magazine, she was on the cover of all these magazines as the next Steve Jobs. Uh, spookily and creepily, she dressed like Steve Jobs. She was kind of a, a, a challenging person. But she was becoming hugely famous, probably the most famous tech startup in Silicon Valley. And here's Tyler Schultz, and it doesn't take him long at all 
this intern, this college student, this 22, 23-year-old, doesn't take him long at all to discover that the whole thing is a fraud. So not knowing that Elizabeth Holmes is in on the fraud, uh, he goes to her first. He then gets called to the the CEO, um, and the CEO chews him out, basically threatens him, and Schultz, I think, doesn't realize at the time that the CEO is also Holmes's lover. Yeah, awkward. Anyway, Holmes decides, okay, I, I need to expose this because by this point, they're actually doing tests on actual patients. Like, it's getting really serious. And so he calls the Washington Post and blows the whistle to them, and they are the ones that ended up ultimately exposing the story as a fraud. Uh, as of the recording of this podcast, um, Elizabeth Holmes is awaiting her sentencing. Uh, the trial's done, and she's looking to face up to 20 years in prison for what's considered one of the largest fraud cases in modern history. This is kind of a Bernie Madoff level fraud case. All right, so Schultz blows the whistle to the press. He starts talking to the newspaper. Somewhere along the way, Elizabeth Holmes gets word of it, and she calls Tyler Schultz's granddad, this legendary man, George Schultz. By this point, George Schultz had to be in his late 80s, and he was a giant figure of a guy. He'd worked for Nixon, Reagan, George W. Bush. He was just a giant in American historical stuff. I mean, he helped bring down the Berlin Wall. It's just crazy. So she lets granddad in on it, and George Schultz calls Tyler his grandson and basically threatens him that he has to stop doing this. He's destroying the company. George Schultz was a true believer. And Tyler differentiates. Rather than cutting off his, his granddad and rather than enmeshing with his granddad, he very calmly says to his granddad, can we meet in person can we chat about it in person? Granddad says, sure, come on over. So he comes on over and he says to his granddad's face, here's what's going on. It's not true. You've been sold a, a bunch of lies and I'm here as your grandson to try to help you see it. Now, you would think that a grandfather would give his grandson a fair shake there, but George doubles down on Tyler Schultz. Fast forward a little bit. Now, Theranos is uh, threatening to sue Tyler Schultz. Remember, this is a kid. He's 23. He's an intern. He's a college student. They're threatening to sue him. And so George Schultz calls, but so does Tyler's parents. Now, I'm not as clear on Tyler's parents' motivation. It might have just been that they didn't want their son getting into trouble, but they're all trying to beg him off the case. And once again, he calls his grandfather and says, can I meet with you one-on-one in private? And George invites him over. And uh, what Tyler doesn't know is George has Theranos lawyers in the other room hiding, waiting to hijack the meeting. So George listens to what Tyler has to say. Tyler is not budging. He's like, I've got to expose this. This is a fraud. Real people are in danger here. So George actually calls the company lawyers on his own grandson. Now, Tyler Schultz ended up racking up over $400,000 in legal fees to expose Theranos. And largely because of of his differentiation, he told the truth. He stayed true to who he was. He did not let his grandfather's anxiety, his parents' anxiety, his boss's anxiety infect him. He managed his own anxiety. Can you imagine 
how nerve-wracking it must be to go to your own parents and your own grandparents' house and not be believed or being told to stop doing this. Incredible, incredible. And largely because of his whistleblowing. He wasn't the only whistleblower, but he was one of the most significant. Largely because of that, the truth came out. The newspaper published the article, Wall Street Journal. The uh, journalist was John Carreyou, and uh, he became one of the top sources in the article, and they brought Theranos down. Then it became a lawsuit. The two main leaders of Theranos charged, awaiting sentencing right now, likely around 20 years of jail time is what they're looking at, all because of this young intern. Amazing. So you can chase the story yourself. You can just Google Tyler Schultz. Schultz is what he's most famous for. You can Google the dropout. You can listen to the podcast or watch the series for yourself. That's the power of differentiation, folks. You know, differentiation is not just standing alone and just doing the right thing. It's staying connected to people without enmeshing into them and giving into them and without cutting them off. A lot of the world's greatest leadership moments are because of differentiation. Martin Luther King, Winston Churchill. You could make a list on and on and on. And as we close this podcast, what I find fascinating is secular systems theorists point to Jesus of Nazareth as the most differentiated person ever to live. When they teach differentiation, they say that's the guy that did it better than anyone else. All right, folks. Hey, thanks for listening in. Look forward to catching up with you next week. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.